You're listening to a Bespoken Media production. This is my family, mental illness and me. I'm Dr. Pamela Jenkins. I, like so many people, grew up with a parent with a mental illness. My mum, Irene, had schizoaffective disorder. This had a profound effect on my childhood and continues to impact my life, even today. This podcast is made by the charity Our Time. In each episode, a different guest will share their own experience of growing up with a family member or family members living with mental illness. I really hope that you enjoy listening to these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. We do explore some difficult and potentially triggering memories throughout the series. So there's advice and links to support in the show notes. Please, please do speak to someone if you're affected by anything raised in the episodes. This time, we welcome a former health minister in the UK government and a member of the House of Lords. Good morning, I'm James Bethel. I'm former health minister and now backbench member of the House of Lords. And um, uh, I lived with my mother who, from when I was a very, very small child, really struggled uh, with postnatal depression, uh, uh, which sadly eventually killed her when I was 10 years old after a huge struggle with alcohol and drugs and mental illness and psychologists and the health system and the breakdown of her marriage and all sorts of struggles. And uh, the impression, I mean, is still with me today. Uh, and uh, I'm here to talk about it, hopefully to help others who have lived through similar experiences. Oh, James, thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming to talk to me today, especially about something that I can already see is a very emotive subject for you. So um, I guess the, the floor really is yours. So tell me, tell me a bit about your mum. What do you remember? What are your, some of your earliest memories of your mother? My very earliest memory was... Um, was really the breakdown of her marriage. So I, um, uh, when I was four years old, uh, we lived in a huge Georgian house in Ascot. Um, and my mother and father bought it um, in the hopes of having a long and happy family life there. Uh, but uh, when she had me and then when she had my brother, uh, she was really hit hard by postnatal depression for one reason or another and um, declined really quickly into just a, a mania of, of, of drinking and, and uh, unable to cope with life. Uh, and my father, for his part, who had had a very tough childhood in the war, had been sent abroad and had not seen his own parents until he was five years old, um, was, was a, found it really difficult to cope with that. And uh, in, in the 1970s, the the attitudes were different and she took the full brunt of the blame for her for her mental struggles and so their marriage broke down when I was four years old and really my first memory was walking down an avenue of trees at our at our big house uh, holding her hand and and she told me that she was going to be going away and that we were going to be selling the house and uh, I was really baffled by the whole thing and found it very odd and I have a sort of another sort of half memory, you know, what it's like when you're a child of being in the car and driving away from the big house and stopping for an ice cream on the way. 
And I asked, you know, when are we going to be going back? And my father saying, no, we're never going to be going back. And me asking, well, will mummy be at where we're going? He said, no, mummy's going somewhere else. And that was the, that was kind of like the beginning of my formal childhood. And, and, and from then I saw my mother, uh, on Sunday, Sunday mornings, um, uh, but live with my father because I'm afraid my mother was just in no condition to look after us. Um, and some were lovely and she was a hilarious, uh, character, really warm and, and sweet. She's from Cooper and Fife, you know, a classic, oh. a, a classic warm hearted <laughs> Scott. Uh, and and I loved her very much indeed, but half the times we turned up, she was a total mess. Uh, either either having been started her drinking, uh, or recovering from her drinking, or or just emotionally heartbroken, really, from mm. her own condition, from being separated from her children, um, and um, they were really difficult memories and really difficult experiences. Was she ever hospitalized? Yes, she was hospitalized, um, afraid quite a few times. Um, sometimes because her, sometimes because her condition had deteriorated so badly. I remember, uh, one occasion when she had clearly, you know, we arrived and, uh, she was on the ground and the nanny had to phone an ambulance and, uh, and get her off to hospital. Um, and then partly from treatment, she did some quite long and extended stays um, and had electric shock treatment. I mean, utterly brutal old school medicine. Mm -hmm. I don't think any of it helped. Um, she had injections to try and pills to try and stop her from drinking that made her sick when she drank. But, yeah. you know, if you have those medicines, you don't have the, the support, then they never work really. And I remember visiting her in hospital once when she had clearly had quite a big setback. Um, and there were, you know, it was, the, the world was full of lies. Uh, she never, she never talked about her drinking, which not, I mean, you know, to, how can you, how can a mum talk about drinking to their small children? I, I, I don't call them lies in a malicious sense. They were, they were white lies. And she said that she was, it was slightly baffling to me. She said that she didn't quite know why she was in hospital, but there was some puffiness to her face and the doctor felt that she should spend a couple of weeks in hospital. And of course, you know, even though I was seven or something, I, I, was, like, I was obviously rubbish. Um, yeah. But, you know, the lies don't help. You know, if you're a kid, you know, even if they are well-intentioned uh, lies, you know, the lying of people in addiction is, you know, that leaves a really bad legacy. Do you feel that if you had been spoken to about what was going on, that would have helped you as a child? Oh, for sure. I mean, the, the whole thing was very old-fashioned. Um my father was utterly heartbroken by the whole thing. He he had himself had a terrible relationship with his mother, and I think felt that um, you know another woman had let him down, and so he 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 had pretty complicated feelings about the whole thing, and and was heartbroken. I think I think he 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 loved my mother very much indeed, and felt very distressed that this was a problem that he couldn't do any felt he couldn't do anything about. So a, a weird mixture of betrayal, distress anger and frustration yeah um we didn't really have a lot of people around who would level with me about what the hell was going on and the nannies were sweet but it wasn't really their their role to play so that, so i was pretty baffled by the whole thing and um and also felt a, a sense of um embarrassment and uh you know I, in those days it was quite uncommon to have divorced parents i think in my form there were one or two other kids but um 
you know, I wasn't, it was quite unusual not to go home to two parents. So the whole yeah. thing was quite odd. Yeah. It's interesting as well, because often we, when we think about mental illness, mental illness correlates quite strongly with poverty and maybe people don't realise that actually mental illness can affect people from all different backgrounds. And interesting to boot, you've got the idea of, you know, having then the divorced parents that you're experiencing different stigmas, you know, dual stigmas that were quite specific to your circumstances. And that must have been very difficult. Oh, yes. I mean, financially and, and you know, socially, I, I couldn't have been born with more advantage. Um, and, um, you know, I can't come from a big ostensibly warm, big, you know, establishment family. There's yeah. a lot of mental health issues in, 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 in amongst my family and friends. You know, this was not unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, I felt terrible about it because, um, partly because people didn't really talk to me about it. Um, yeah. and, uh, that got better. You know, I, 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 actually my father was very loving and provided a very warm, household and I was never in any doubt about his love and commitment to me and my brother and I we used to say you know we used to look at some other people's families where perhaps the two parents were rowing and our friends were you know feeling that pressure mm-hmm. and we used to say to ourselves well you know what <laughs> it's not so bad at least we know our dad loves us right mm-hmm. and and so from that point of view um you know it it, it was odd but we it wasn't you know, it was warm and 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 consistent in a funny sort of way. Yeah. But looking back on it, I really miss a mother's love. I really missed that um, particular sort of um, unconditional warmth that you would typically get from your mother. And my father was a, a sweetie pie, but he was <laughs> a you know old fashioned, slightly Aspergery, stiff old British bloke, right? <laughs> kids need you know that's that is quite a useful kind of uh skill set with young sons but um yeah. i did miss the other dimension yeah and you say you know you you never doubted that your father loved you and you always felt loved and you mentioned earlier that your mum was a very kind-hearted warm funny person did you you know you saw when you saw her on the sundays one day a week did you feel love from her did you feel loved by your mother uh yes uh, I did, but it was very inconsistent. Yeah. And that, that so it spoiled it. So it wasn't, you know, I I more loved the idea of her, but I couldn't rely on it. You, if you can't, and if you can't rely on it, um, it's, um, yeah, my, my, my memory of it was pretty one-way traffic. It was me supporting her and trying to, think of ways that I could make her feel better, frankly, which were quite limited um, because, (laughs) you know, what she wanted was to feel better and to be able to have us in her life. Um, But the, you know, it didn't work that way. Um, The legal system was against her. Yeah. The social system was against her. She was denigrated. You know, she was considered to be a bad mother and, and um, all the sympathy was with my father. Um, the health system was against her. They gave her horrid drugs, you know, like tortured her. Um, she had an affair with her with her doctor, which, you know, oh, nowadays would be regarded as completely inappropriate. And even then, I, I always, I met him many times. I always regarded him as a sort of 
weak and creepy guy. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, not to put too fine a point of it, you know, I do think she was killed for being a woman. You know, she worked, the health system really let her down. Yeah. Both in terms of the understanding of her condition, which had never had any proper research or thoughtfulness yeah. behind it. Uh, and in terms of her basic treatment, you know, which was just suboptimal. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel, I mean, this is slightly off track from your experience, this question, but do you feel there has been any progress now, in your opinion? Yeah, no, I, th well, that's, I listen, there's been some progress, of course, but not, not nearly enough. Yeah. I mean, postnatal depression as a, as a phenomenon is still hugely uh, part of our lives. Uh, yeah. I've got four children and, uh, you know, I'm... Uh, I have lots of friends. You know, I, I it 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 is a great unspoken part of family experience, and people yeah. still struggle but with it and and get knocked back by it. The yeah. clinical the res the research resources that go into it are minimal, mm -hmm. and um, there's a big row about what causes it and how to treat it, which is pretty flipping unhelpful. Yeah, uh, and it's just a classic example of where the medical system overlooks women uh, and their conditions. Uh, yeah. I, you know, for all of her faults, Nadine Dorries did a very powerful piece of work as the Minister for Women's Health, and she did the Women's Health Strategy. And when you read it and you realise how poorly we understand many basic um, conditions uh, for, for women and, and how little research goes in and how the treatment is so poor, yeah. uh, it does make me very angry. Yeah, absolutely. And it contributes to further stigma. It creates well, more and more stigma for women because it's not stigma, being... Stigma, but also just bad outcomes. You know, we have, yeah, a, we have half absolutely. the population who have, you know, half as good treatment. Yeah, it's shocking. It is absolutely shocking. Um, I could talk to you about that as a separate discussion all day, if I'm being I honest, <laughs> with my public health researcher hat on. But I'm going to bring it back a little minute to your experience. Um, when you were talking about when on the occasions when you saw your mum feeling that responsibility as to, for, to keep her happy or to make her happy, that's something that comes up quite a lot with children who've had a parent with a mental illness. And it's interesting to me that even though you weren't seeing her as often, so you weren't living with her, you still fe felt that sense of burden or responsibility. What was that like? Um... Well, tough, you know. I, I, I did. I loved her very much, and it and it just pained me to see her and her suffering. You know, she was so obviously deeply, deeply distressed, um, both by the frustration of her own condition, because she was an incredibly talented um, person. She'd had a very successful professional life. She came from a uh, well-regarded Scottish family. Her father was a minister in the. Kirk and professor of Aramaic at St Andrews University. Her brother was a high-flying doctor at Dundee. You know, he, she was like from a serious Scottish professional family. She had had a serious job in uh, in the media. Um, had come down to London, had children, and blown up, and 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 just didn't know how to get better. And she was hugely distressed by being separated not just she was separated from us and she was separated from her scottish family so she was she was living in a flat in in holland park um incredibly lonely and um 
and and sad. And there, there wasn't really much as a child I could do. But, I, you know, I really did, you know, I felt a very big burden to try to somehow cheer her up and to and to mend her or bring her solace. But quite often, because she had been drinking uh, or because she was, you know, distressed, nothing, there was nothing I could say or do. And so from, it was, you know, it left me feeling very sort of um, weak and unempowered. It's difficult for a child as well, because that inability, I think, to understand, you know, why can't I make it better? I love them so much. Why, why is this not enough? You know, I certainly felt that myself, even though obviously as an adult, you know, that's not a rational position to take. As a child, it certainly made me feel like, why am I not able to make her better? Why, why isn't enough that she's you know that i'm here and i'm yeah, supporting that's right and then that's compounded when one starts feeling like you don't really want to go and see her yeah uh, and then you start feeling guilty about not wanting to go and see her well of course you don't want to go and see her because it's pretty distressing and she's pretty unreliable and some of the events are you know i remember you know there was a bench by the number 88 bus on uh, just by high park we used to sit on there on a Sunday morning when TFL was a disaster, <laughs> wait, waiting for the buses to turn up. Um, and, um, you know, Sunday morning, oh, you know, it was just like, you know, and sometimes we turned up and we went to Holland Park and played in the adventure playground together and uh, had a milkshake and had a lovely time. But quite often <laughs> it was <laughs> a problem. Yeah. And, and that sense of loss as well that you spoke about, do you – do you still feel that now? Oh, yeah. There's not a day I don't think about her. Yeah. And what do you think? What's your, when you think about her, what do you think? What's the um, first thing? Well, she died when I was quite young. So it, it, I didn't know her very well. Mm -hmm. um, I, I went on to Edinburgh University and then worked in Scotland for a bit. And I have ties to Scotland. And um, I love Scotland and holiday there. And, you know, my Scottishness is a sort of tie to her. Yeah. So that's nice. But what I don't like thinking about is the sort of gap in my heart that sort of, you know, that sort of yeah. mother love shaped, you know, oof, that, that is something I really don't like to think about. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, I... Because it, it makes me think to myself, what kind of person I would have been if I uh, if if that hadn't happened. If I if I had had a more conventional upbringing, maybe I would have been a slightly different kind of person. In in what way? So, how do you feel it has impacted on the kind of person oh, I mean, you are it now? It definitely, you know, left me, you know, troubled and you know, uh, you know, issues with having relationships. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a sort of slightly strange upbringing. Took me a bit of time to have good relationships with women. Mm -hmm. I, I still miss stuff with people. I think some of that's because I'm just a clunky, posh bloke. But, <laughs> sometimes, but part of it is because I have certain protections in place that mean that I just refuse to pick up on on certain people, particularly distress. I'm sort of okay. both good and bad with people who are distressed. I, I have a I have a very high tolerance for people who are distressed, but I sometimes don't pick up on or fully understand what's going on. 
And I think that comes from certain protections from when I was a child. You know, it did give, it did teach me resilience. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I, mm -hmm. I have good stamina. I am pretty good under pressure. I am not very easily rattled. On the other hand, um, you know, that does kind of mean you're not picking up on everything because you've, you've got these uh, protections in place. Almost like a sort of emotional barrier or something. Yeah, you put a filter, you know, part of, yeah. part of your way of getting through things is to put a filter on stuff. Well, the filter presents its own problems. Do you think that that's almost a barrier to protect yourself? You oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's interesting as well that, that word resilience again it comes up often and because I think as a child you're sort of thrown into a position where you very quickly even if you are left living with a, a competent loving parent you're very quickly thrust into a very independent place as a young child I think you have to become more independent I certainly did quite quickly felt yeah just I had to somehow grow up more quickly than other kids did yeah well I I literally didn't have anyone to pick, you know, I had no one, if I had some adversity, I mean, my dad was nice, but he wasn't, he wasn't a sort of attentive parent. And he, like mm -hmm. I say, he wasn't particularly observant. So in life setbacks, you know, the bad grades and the, you know, you know, all the things that go wrong. I never had someone who would pick me back up and put me back on my feet. Yeah. So you learn how to do that. <clears throat> I think also, I mean, I, I sort of mentioned this before. I, if your mother dies when you're 10 years old, that is literally about the worst thing that could happen to you. Yeah. So if you sort of survived that, you know, if you're like, like if the worst thing that you can imagine happening to you happened, but you still survived, then what else can go wrong? So I have quite a high tolerance of risk. And, you know, I, I do kind of think, you know, and, and you, you know, I, I, you sometimes if you talk to refugees, um, you know, people who have immigrated to the UK who have lost their homes and their families, mm -hmm. and they turn up here and they're just unbelievably impressive, and are just getting on with things and plowing on. You know, what do they say? They say, "Listen, if you've lost your home and your yeah. village has been blown up and your half your family are dead, and you turn up in the UK, to be honest, the problems yeah. you have in the UK, they're." Yeah. <laughs> not so big, right? Yeah. And um, uh, that's a bit of how I feel about it. And I, and I also, I've got to be honest, I, I kind of, that is part of the rationalization that makes me, you know, helps me get through it all, is I, I do regard it as a bit, I mean, oddly, as a badge of honor that yeah. um, I'm part of the club of people who lost their mums when I was small. And yeah. that you can run, I run into them every now and again. <laughs> And they're like, oh, you lost your mum when you was well. Yeah, it's kind of a thing, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's kind of a thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, we, we got through it, man. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's very impressive. I can't, you know, imagine. I just lost my mum two years ago during COVID. But, um, oh, you know, even though she had her quite, you know, very severe mental illness, she she was there in part of my life for a longer yeah. period of time. So um, I can't imagine. I lost my dad when, he, when I was 11. Um, right. But I can't imagine... Um, despite the illness, not having had my mum be present. So yeah. um, I can, it is impressive to to be where you are now, no question. How do you feel this experience has sort of shaped where you are now? How, you know, your trajectory throughout life? Um, 
I don't know. It's a bit early to tell. <laughs> um, how has it shaped me? I mean, listen, it's it's a hell of a knock. You know, it, it, will, it hit my confidence a, a lot. Yeah. And um, um, I took industrial quantities of uh, group therapy in my late 20s, early 30s. I did about three years of group therapy twice a week. Um, so that's real boot camp. You know, yeah. as you probably know, group therapy is one of the tougher ways of doing it, <laughs> but tougher than just, you know, one-on-one. And doing it twice a week, it's quite hard. <laughs> doing it for three years, <laughs> quite hard. Yeah. That that helped a lot. Um, it it created, you know, broke down a lot of barriers and, and gave me a lot more self-awareness. But it was only really getting married and, you know, I, I married a, a fantastic woman um, who is literally the most reliable person in Britain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally. <laughs> she's, um, you know, top of her profession of being a reliable person. Aww. And and that that was brilliant. I mean, that was the best thing I did. And mm. I've now got, uh, you know, a massive anchor. She gives me a pretty hard time. I mean, she's, <laughs> I don't want you to get the wrong idea. She, Imagine uh, the most reliable person in Britain should yeah, be giving demanding. you the, Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, boy, you know, I have literally lashed myself to the lighthouse and uh, I am, I have very, very firm ground beneath me now. Uh, and that's, that's, that's helped me a lot. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I wouldn't, uh, yeah, it's been, uh, I think, I think, and you know, it's, bloody obvious isn't it I mean of course <laughs> I had uh, a mum who struggled with mental illness alcoholism and drug abuse and who died in a bath when I was 10 and I oh. married the world's most reliable person I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know goodness. good move right yeah that's a very good move very good move and do you think your experience with your mother shaped the profession that you have chosen I don't know um you know I, I come from a you know I'm the fifth generation in my peerage and I've come from a long family of public service. So yeah. that's, that in itself is not unusual. Um, has it made me, you know, has the early death of my mother made me needy of approbation and uh, uh, a bit of a showboat? Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> and uh, there, you know, the stats are very interesting, aren't they? What is it? 60, 70% of presidents had a parent die when they were a child. Is that right? Yeah. Oh gosh, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah. Very common. Wow. Be a classic example. Wow. Oh yeah, look it up on Google. Same, same with uh, prime ministers. Very, very high, very high proportion. Gosh. There is something about political leadership for sure that is, yeah, you know, there is a correlation with um, early death of a parent. Oh, that's interesting. Tony Blair, his father had a big heart attack when he was a child. It, it. Um, taught him resilience, taught, he speaks about it very movingly. Yeah. Um, but it definitely led him on the path to lead, you know, the, the, the highly remunerated legal life and go into public service. It's interesting. I bet there are a lot of people as well who had a parent, whether it was the parent who died or a different parent who had a mental illness. But it again, it's still not spoken about as much. It's quite difficult to, people will speak about their own mental health struggles but it's actually difficult to identify people whose parent had yeah. a mental illness because 
I think often maybe people don't want to, it's still a bit of stigma there. They don't want to talk about it so much or I'm not sure why that is, but it would be interesting to know how many people in the public yeah, eye. I, I, think, I think you're right. I mean, listen, I, it took me until I was 54 to talk about it at all. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I spoke about it a bit at the beginning of the year and a lot of my good, you know, long-standing friends came up to me and said, oh, I had, I had no idea. And I feel sure I mentioned it to them, but um, <laughs> yeah. uh, some, somehow, no, listen, I think, I, I think talking about one's, one's own, you know, identity is, is, is okay. I think in Britain, we struggle with, with like appearing weak and mm -hmm. appearing to blame something else. You know, we want to come across as strong, resilient characters talking about your I don't know dyslexia or your, or your, or, 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 or 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 physical issues. You know that's one thing, but but trying to blame your parents, it, it all seems rather Californian and yeah. and Prince Harry, right? And we don't, we <clears throat> I, I, I I'm I'm sort of not comfortable with that on one level. On the other hand, it is such a big thing in my life. Yeah, I mean, it's so obviously defined me and coloured every every decision I've ever made and is so obviously a huge part of my character. I've got, you know, it seems nuts not to mention it. Could I just ask quickly um, why it is that it's only recently that you have spoken out? Why why, why now? Why have you chosen now to, to talk about it? Well, I, I have been following the online safety bill in the House of Lords um, and uh, I've been focused on trying to bring in really effective age verification for pornography and as I spent more and more time looking at what's happening with our children with tens of millions of very young adolescents having mobile phones in their pockets and consuming huge amounts of really nasty hardcore uh, physically aggressive pornography uh, I've re been reminded on a very personal basis of, of my own childhood uh, and, and as I said to you, Pam, it, it's it's two sides of the same coin. On the, on the one hand, losing your mother when you're very young does teach you a certain resilience. It, it teaches you that the worst thing in the world that can happen to you, but you still survive. Uh, and that teaches you a certain kind of bravery and toughness and, um, and courage. But yeah. it also, you know, the fact that I think about my mother every day, it makes me realize that a a childhood lasts a lifetime. And when I think about the mistake we're making, allowing the big tech entrepreneurs into the bedrooms and schoolyards and school buses of our children, distributing horrid, nasty, suicide, uh, anorexia, pornographic content without any regulation at all, without any thought for what this is doing to their brains, uh, it makes me really worried I mean, really angry and worried. Yeah. And uh, I think we've been real suckers. We we somehow deluded ourselves into thinking that what happens online is different to what happens on offline. And we bought this stupid idea that somehow the internet was innovative and somehow it didn't matter if, you know, what goes on tour stays on tour kind of attitude. But with all of these mobile phones and all these tablets and computers in our children's bedrooms and pockets, I think we've made, we're, we're causing huge, huge harm. And yeah. it woke up in me a, a, you know, a memory and a realization 
that I was carrying with me in my heart and in my behaviours today things that happened 50 years ago. And, and it had changed me and it had a big impact on me. And we're letting that, that harm uh, happen in a lot of people's lives. And we're going to look back and really regret it. Yeah. So for me, it was a really personal connection. And, and um, the energy and the, and the uh, commitment I've put into trying to change the law on age verification for porn was really, really motivated by my own personal experience. And therefore, it just made sense to, you know, that sort of mild awakening made sense yeah. to, to try to get that message across and, and, uh, and, and to share it a bit with people. I, I hope in a funny sort of way that being a posh bloke fessing up to coming <laughs> from a broken family, I kind of helped destigmatize it because you're right. Yeah, you, you, you know, people think about it in terms of you know uh, a condition of deprivation, whereas actually it happens everywhere. It uh, you does, know, and it, you know, if you go, if you meet the boys and girls from Eton Harrow and what have you, they'll they'll they'll, they'll talk about privately about you know huge amounts of mental health issues. But for me, there was another important point, which is that um, being a health minister opened my eyes to. Um, a problem we've got more broadly with for, forgetting how important childhood is in the round. Now, I'm I'm very keen for my children to be very independent and to be uh, to experience. I, I don't, I'm not a very protective parent. I'm like pushing them out <laughs> into into the world of adventure and and. But I have really realised that the environment that they that they grow up in and some of the things that we're that they're encountering are really damaging and counterproductive. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. And actually you could relate it in certain ways to children who do have these, you know, unchecked, have unchecked access to these things. What sort of home life have they got? How is it relating to, you know, for example, to bring it back to children of parents with mental illness, the services that, that people with mental illness get do not often incorporate the family so if we had more of a family-based approach and we were able to see okay what's happening within that family where you you know arguably a child may have more access to things and have more freedom of movement or whatever if if there's less capacity within the home to cope with a child if there is mental illness then what would it look like if we had a family-based approach to to different health conditions and how might that impact then on children's internet usage because if they have more oversight if we're supporting parents within whatever household situation yep. they have to support their children then then that might help i, I totally the, the idea that mark zuckerberg has more insight into how to bring up my children than i do is quite wrong <laughs> <laughs> i mean the guy he <laughs> should not be uh responsible for being in my children's uh, bedrooms at night i mean no. he, he's totally uh, ill-suited for that yeah. and um, families should be empowered to make many more of these decisions both in terms of access to content um, and also the treatment of addictions and and harms yeah. when, when they happen I, I Absolutely. agree and and it shouldn't just be those families that are in a better position to do that these families who are struggling with whatever it may be need extra support yeah. and and if we could identify families at the point of where we say okay for example 
this family, there's a parent with a mental illness, quite a severe and enduring mental illness. They've got two children. How can we support that whole family to ensure that the experience is a good one yeah. <laughs> and that these children grow up where possible with their parent and they are supported to to live a safe childhood in yes. every respect? Yes. I mean, when I went off the rails as a teenager, there was the, the options for self-harm are relatively limited <laughs> no it's, it's you know it's a yeah, yeah. broader palette on offer yeah you, you say you went off the rails I didn't I didn't pick up on that what how did you go off the rails when you were a teenager what happened um not, nothing hugely dramatical but you know um I mean I, I was very unhappy for quite a long time yeah and yeah. um I didn't really know how to behave because I'd missed that sort of bit of coaching and that bit of, you know, nudging. And um, I was a bit angry and pissed off and, and basically unhappy. Yeah. I mean, as you know, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's why a lot of people, you know, uh, go off the rails. How about your children? Are you planning on talking to them about your mother? Have you spoken to them? I have. I, I have spoken to them about it. Um, and I would say that they're, they're still processing it. Okay. And um, they haven't really come back to me on it. Um, they will. They're, yeah. they're very smart, my children. Yeah. Uh, and they're very thoughtful. And um, there is a sort of cognitive dissonance between this sort of big, colourful, sort of heart-on-his-sleeve dad that they've got. Yeah. Um, and my depictions of, you know, what rather grim life was in the 1970s, you know, shuttling between broken parents and sort of yeah. having a bit of a crappy time. Yeah. So I think they're, I think they're just trying to, trying to figure it out. And is mental health something that you openly talk about with your children? Is that part yes. of the conversation? Well, I, th I think, I think we all do now. I mean, it's one of yeah. the benefits of, of, of living uh, today and C COVID um, and the subsequent, you know, as we, we, I mean, it's one of the good things. And my wife's from California, so uh, everyone in California talks about mental health all the time. <laughs> um, so yeah, we um, we do we do talk about it. Um, uh, they're less, you know, they're they're my kids are eight, eleven, thirteen, and sixteen. You know, they're in the mm -hmm. they're in the throng of it. They don't regard themselves as having you know, mental health issues. Yeah, they, they, they're quite. Uh, yeah, yeah. It would be nice to see. I, I've you know banged on about this before but I do feel that the conversation around mental health has really progressed in recent years yeah. but I think we have a long way to go when it comes to talking about mental illness and severe mental illnesses yeah. and it would be nice to see more open discussion around that and progress there yes um, I know what you mean um they get a lot of mental of wellness and sort of um coaching on getting enough sleep and doing exercise and eating well. But that is different from, you know, but, but, but they've all come across children who may have committed suicide or dropped out of school altogether or who have been severely distressed or have been uh, wrongly diagnosed with, with um, neurodiversity. You yeah. know, that those, those kinds of, mega challenges are of, are of a different order and um 
yeah, we haven't quite resolved those. And when it comes to um, particularly the online arms, uh, yeah. you know, uh, my, at my daughter's school, she's 11 years old. She's the only person in her year who doesn't have a phone. Well, mm -hmm. that's, we're going to look back on that and just decide that's a really bad idea. It's awful. I have a, he's, he'll be 10 a week today. And every day we are having a meltdown with him because right. he wants a phone and we are saying absolutely not. And it's really difficult. Know. You know, everyone else has a phone. I'm yeah. the only one. And it's, you've just got to stand your ground, don't you? And stay yeah. firm because we keep trying to say our first job is to keep you safe and you might not see, I know. but well, I, I, that's what we're doing. I think it's changing. The, the um, Surgeon General in America has written a very powerful piece of advice uh, the week before last. Uh, and he has said that his children aren't getting phones until they're 16. And he has made a blanket recommendation that no child under 16 should be allowed anywhere near social media or okay. harmful content. That is a big change in the previous advice. Previous advice was yeah. the parents should, like you've just described, you know, moderate phone usage. Now, that, this is a big inflection point. I just, the children's brains are very plastic and, and that makes them weirdly resilient. It makes them weirdly capable of getting through amazing hardships and difficulty. But Fluella Benjamin, uh, Baroness Benjamin, who I'm in the law, House of Lords with, has this cheesy phrase. Um, she says, a childhood lasts a lifetime. And she's it, right. And we all true. groan when she says, oh, I've started as a lifetime. But, um, you know, it, it, that, that was my big insight during COVID. I suddenly realized, yeah. yeah, you know, there are children who are being put under pressure today who, who are going to carry th th these impressions for their whole life. Yeah. And we just have to respect that fact more thoughtfully. Absolutely. And it certainly applies. I can't speak for yourself, although I, from what you've said today, I suspect so. It applies certainly to me for, I think about my mum every single day. That impact will always be there. The childhood I had with her, all the good and the bad, Yeah, it, it, it will live with me forever. And I think for children who've got a parent with a mental illness, yeah. that's a really fantastic phrase. Yeah. So, oh, thank you so much for being here to to speak with me today and being so open and also given that it's relatively recently that you've really started to talk about this and explore it that's really brave and impressive so I really appreciate you choosing to come and talk to me not at all um, it's lovely lovely to chat we didn't really talk about your mum but uh, oh no uh, don't worry we... that's this is great to hear <laughs> about about your mum and your experience and uh, you need to just come up to Scotland more and work more on your Scottish accent you mentioned something about your accent I know, earlier I know. I gave up on that. <laughs> lovely lovely to meet you and thank you so much again we'll make a big difference to a lot of people hearing your experience Bam, thank you really great to talk to you as well This has been My Family, Mental Illness and Me. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget, we would love you to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you automatically get new episodes. Please share these stories with anyone you think might need to hear them. You can help bring talking about mental illness out of the shadows. If you're experiencing any of the issues discussed in this podcast, 
please know that you can get in touch with the charity, Our Time. Our Time provides support to thousands of children and young people who have parents or guardians dealing with mental illness. It's ourtime.org.uk or at Our Time Charity on social media. If you feel like you're struggling with mental health or you've been affected by anything in this episode, it's really important that you speak to someone. There are links to help in the show notes, but you can also contact your GP, call the Samaritans on 116 123 or contact Childline on 0800 My family, Mental Illness and Me is made for our time by Spoken Media. The production team are Patrick Wallace and Dave Howard. Original music composed by Joel Cox. Produced by the Spoken Media.